0: Well, we are spending eight weeks together in the book of Jeremiah and this third sermon uh, in the series really gives us a kind of a, a reader's digest version of the rest of the book. <laughs> this first part of chapter two and really the majority of chapter two gives us Jeremiah's primary sermon. What is it that Jeremiah is asked to give to his people what is God asking him to to preach and I think chapter 2 is pretty much the synopsis of Jeremiah's primary message to his people. Prophets are people in the Old Testament who stand in that gap between God and God's people and try to direct their attention back to their source of life, to remind them of how they find meaning and coherence in their identity in God. And Jeremiah is clearly one of those who is standing in that gap and calling people to acknowledge the presence of God. And so we're going to look at chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 13, and listen for the word of God as we listen to Jeremiah's sermon to his people and what God tells him to say. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and those who tried to eat of her were held guilty. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthless things, and became worthless themselves? They did not say, Where is the Lord, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through where no one lives. I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me, the prophets prophesied by Baal, and went after things that do not profit. Therefore once more I accuse you, says the Lord. I accuse your children's children. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and look, or send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. Be appalled at this and be shocked and be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear the grace and the invitation embodied in this passage of your displeasure. Help us to hear your longing for what you made us to be and your consternation at the way we choose to reject that. Help us to hear your steadfast and unending invitation to life and love through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. So I have to say that one of my kind of anecdotal observations about my time in pastoral ministry, and it has been significant, is that if I was to make a conclusion about what often brings someone in to talk to me, or the conversation that I have with someone on an airplane when I tell them I'm a pastor, or whatever it is is that often the first question that is asked is you know i've always wondered if such and such is really a sin you can fill in such and such with whatever what you want to it's whatever is troubling or besetting the person that's asking the question but they are wondering and wanting a definition of what is sin they're wanting a law, a boundary, a legal limit, at what point does God get mad at me? It's not an unusual question. It's something that I hear quite often and I'm, I'm always taken with it because it's as if someone's saying give me a boundary. Is this particular thing wrong? Will God be mad at me if I, if I do this thing? Or why is God mad at people who do these things? On the one hand, it's a desire, I think, at some level, to please God. It's a a question that says, I want to know what lines I'm not supposed to cross. But I think it's really more about, for most people, it's really more about getting out of or trying to stay out of God's way. Trying to escape God's notice. It's sort of born of that bumper sticker that you see periodically, the theology of that bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. (laughs) Stay out of his way, fly under the radar, keep cool, and you won't have to worry about God's wrath. It's really not a question about God, it's not a theological question, but it's a question about us. And that's how can I keep from doing things that will get me in trouble with God? What do I need to do to fly under God's radar and go unnoticed? What do I need to do to look busy? And it's the wrong question. Or if not the wrong question, it's certainly not the question that we ought to start with because it puts all of the responsibility on us and it really isn't ever about a relationship. It's about appeasement and staying out of the way. And so thank God that Jeremiah was listening and really invited people to ask a different question. Jeremiah gives us another question and If it's not at the top of the list, it's close to the top of the list of the questions that we ought to be asking if we're truly interested in a relationship with God. And that question that Jeremiah poses that God asks him to ask is, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? Where are you, Lord? How can I find you? How can I be with you? How can I rest in your presence? Where are you? Help me to see. It's a question that acknowledges what St. Augustine says on the first page of his confessions, where he is talking about faith and developing a a theology of relationship with God. And in his confessions, on the very first page, he says, For you made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And the text of chapter 2 in Jeremiah is kind of an exposition of this truth of restlessness and the way we handle the restlessness that doesn't get us anywhere because God asks a question in this text how come no one is asking the question where are you God and he articulates God's question to us how come you're not turning toward me it's not like i haven't made myself known to you and if you look at that and let me just kind of take us through what i what i just read you look first of all at verses two and three and and it's really i remember our relationship in the wilderness i remember how there was this interdependence between us I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, how you were holy to the Lord, the the first fruits of God's harvest. There's another line, and I think it's in the book of Hosea that, that Hosea says that the word of God is like grapes in the wilderness. I found Israel like these succulent, juicy, sweet realities in a place that you don't expect to find them. That's who I found in the wilderness, says God, when I found Israel. That's about mutual devotion. And what Jeremiah goes on to say here is God's word that all who ate of it were held guilty. In other words, all who ate of Israel were held guilty. They, They depended on me and I protected them. But then the other shoe drops. This is what happened. This is the history that we have, a rescue from Egypt, a deliverance from the wilderness into the promised land. But you went away from that, says God. So the question is asked, what wrong did you find in me? That you went far from me and pursued worthlessness and became worthless? And that's what happens, is that we become the thing we go after. We usually get what we want, and we become the thing that we go after. And sometimes that does not profit, but only diminishes. And so God asks, what wrong did you find that you pursued worthlessness and became worthless? How is it that you became what you began to imbibe? And you're not asking the right question, says God. And no one's asking the right question. You're not remembering our history together and the, the exodus. You're not remembering the things that are most important about what we were about and what happened. Because I brought you into a plentiful land after rescuing you to enjoy good things. And yet no one's asking, where is the Lord? The priests aren't asking it. The scribes, the keepers of the law, they aren't asking it. The rulers, the kings and princes, they aren't asking it. And not even the other prophets are asking it. You're not asking, where is the Lord? Your leaders are not leading you, and they are instead going after things that do not profit, and coming up with solutions to the impending disaster that's coming on you that aren't going to work. And if we read the rest of chapter 2, we see all of these descriptions of the way that the leaders of Israel were trying to play power politics with the great powers of the day, Egypt and Assyria, to head off an invasion by Babylon. Trying to get protection, selling off parts of their soul to the, to the powers greater than themselves to try and get protection from Babylon. And so it says, what then do you gain by going to Egypt to drink from the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink from the waters of the Euphrates? Your wickedness will punish you and your apostates will convict you. It won't work. It won't work at all. And that's what Jeremiah goes on to say in verses 9 through 13. For God is asking the question, tell me what I'm to do. Because look around, this is absurd. Has a nation ever changed its gods even though they are no gods? And look around, cross to the coast of Cyprus and look, send to Kadar and examine with care. Has there ever been such a thing? It's God's consternation over this. But you have exchanged glory, what is heavy, What is substantial? That's what glory means in kavod. Glory in Hebrew, it means heaviness, substantial, something that, that has weight. You've exchanged your glory for that which does not profit, that which is like the chaff that's blown by the wind. And guess what you've done? You've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and dug out cisterns for yourself cisterns which end up being cracked. And so when the rain comes, they don't hold any water. Your solutions are not ultimately solutions. Look again, there's a bigger solution. And as I listen to the texts, you know, and I choose these texts, I mean, it's not like I'm not familiar with what's gonna be read, but sometimes when they're actually read, I hear them in a way that just says, wow, this is right. (laughs) This is, this is exactly what we should be reading today. And today I heard the, the sense of this cistern, this hole that you dig is not unlike the hole that you dig to capture an enemy. And that's what the Proverbs are saying. You, he who digs a pit falls into it and he who sets a stone rolling, it rolls back on him. You're foolish. Your attempts to make your life work aren't working. And it's like digging out a cracked cistern and expecting to find water there after the rains, and it's not there. And so I read all of this, and I ask the question that is asked of me, what is sin? Or is this particular thing a sin? And I I see an answer to that question that's more general in this text. Do you want to know what sin is? Sin is the refusal to ask the question, where is the Lord? Plain and simple. Where is God? And how can I connect with this reality that will change my life? Sin is the ridiculous striving to make ourselves acceptable when all we need to do is to turn around and see that God is offering open arms in an embrace, for an embrace. Sin is digging cisterns to collect water rather than noticing and enjoying the endless spring that's gushing up and well within our reach and yet somehow remains out of our sight. That's what sin is. And to take it one step further, sin is making a priority of perfecting religion, a religion that we control rather than directly addressing the one who's asking first and foremost for nothing more and nothing less than faithful covenant relationship with us. I'm not saying that sin isn't a list of wrong things. It certainly is. But in the context of that covenant relationship, those things get addressed. In the context of covenant relationship, we learn what it means to follow the great commandment, which is to love God and to love our neighbors. And in that context, the wrong things we do are gradually in a place of being transformed. Because God is with us and God is not going anywhere. I have a a friend who's now retired. He used to be pastor most recently at the Friday Harbor Presbyterian Church. His name is Joe Betridge. And Joe, in his, the early years of his career, he's about 10 years ahead of me in this saga and career of pastoral ministry. And um, in his, the early years of his career, after graduating from Fuller Seminary, he went to Alaska. He became a pastor, first of a village church in Alaska. I don't know which village it was, but working largely with an indigenous community, a, a native congregation. And then he went to uh, the town of Wasilla and was there before he moved back to the, the lower part of the continent, <laughs> into Arizona of all places. Can you imagine going to, uh, from Alaska to Arizona? But uh, he went from Wasilla to Tucson. That's about making a big change uh, and longing for the sun, I think. He told me the story. We had lunch recently. He told me the story of sitting with a, a group of uh, Klingit elders and they were talking about a particular experience where God seemed close to the congregation. And then in Klingit, I don't know how good his Klingit was, but in Klingit, he gave me an expression that these elders taught him. And I couldn't reproduce it for you, but it's that wonderful sound of of a language that seems to be all consonants uh, and no vowels, rhythmic and wonderful, but he, said the the phrase meant this, Jesus is thick in the room. It's exactly what is being talked about in the Hebrew scriptures when they use the word kavod, glory, heavy. It's an undetectable in some ways, but absolutely apparent reality of God's weighty presence. Jesus is thick in the room. It's about noticing really what is always true. It's true right now. But what we often fail to notice that it's true because we don't take time to ask, where are you? And thus time to hear that question answered with the same words that it's always answered, I'm right here. And it's a pretty important question. And maybe even our primary prayer. And while there may be times when we doubt it, and there certainly are, there may be times when it feels like God is absent, we need to keep asking the question, Because Jesus is thick in the room, and the answer will always be the same. I'm right here, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, help us to stop, to make that slight shift in our perspective, and to notice what is always true, and that is that you are with us. And then by the power of your Spirit, let that guide us into a place of confidence and a deliberate attempt to love you and to love others. And transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we seek to be faithful to that invitation of yours that's always there, and that is to follow, to come and see. For all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.